Well, here we are back again, Friday, time to go inside EMS, and I am so excited to be here with you today, but not as excited as my partner, my buddy, my friend, my compadre, my Cagney to my Lacey. That's probably too <laughs> weird. Here he is, our good friend, Kelly Grayson. KG, what's going on? Uh, I'm good, man. I'd, I'd rather be your... Uh... Uh, you, uh, the rigs to your uh, Murtaugh. Oh, that's better, yeah. <laughs> Rather than be the Cagney to your Lacey. Uh, I just don't like that analogy. Uh, Why do you I'm have good. to be rigs? I guess you would be rigs. Yeah, I would be rigs. So you're the you're the, you're the one that you know the world weary sergeant you know who says I'm too old for this, uh, and I'm the I'm the crazy loner. Um, I'm doing good, man. I'm I'm still on the road getting back from FinCon in Dallas where. Uh, uh, surprisingly enough, one of the panels I, I uh, participated on was was did podcasting kill the radio star? Oh, really? We were we were rock stars, man. Uh, I'm, I've, I've got other guys on the panel that were, you know, I've been hosting this podcast for for X number of episodes, and and then uh, they introduced me, and I said, well, I've been co-host of a podcast for about eight years with over six hundred episodes and well over two million individual listeners, and. And then went, <laughs> so, um, and, and interestingly enough in the audience was Ron Davis, the co-host of, uh, the first podcast I did confessions of an EMS newbie. Get out of here. And, yeah. And Ron's Ron's a uh, fiction author. He's writing some sci-fi fiction and, and, uh, has one out there called, uh, the adventures of space girl red, uh, first of a series he's doing. And, uh, we got to chat a little bit and, and hang out and, uh, Chris, uh, inside EMS and, and, and just EMS in general has got actually a, a bit of a geek following in the sci-fi and fantasy literary community as well. Because uh, I was, I was uh, at an autograph table signing some books, and I swear the first five uh, people that came up to, uh, to get me to sign books were getting me to sign copies of En Route rather than any of the sci-fi or fantasy anthologies I've contributed to uh, recently. And they, they had no idea I was even writing fiction books. So we're like, Oh man, I listen to inside EMS every week, or I listen to confessions of an EMS newbie back when I was trying to research paramedics for my, uh, for my novel. And, and, uh, Oh, I love you guys. Love listening to you guys. So it was a, it's a bit of an ego boost, man. It was pretty great. Yeah. I mean, and that's really one of the things that, you know, uh, it's just amazing that we have anybody out there listening to us and people will always say, you know, I love you guys. And, you know, some, some, uh, you know, just out of the blue, people will come up and, you know, I think I'm getting arrested or I owe somebody money or something when I'm at the conferences <laughs> and they talk about the show or they, they say they listen every week or they have ideas for shows. And we have to remember, man, we're, we're really kind of representing, you know, our career field when we come here and when we talk about the things that are going on inside EMS and, uh, you know, you and I, when we first talked about this show with Artsia way mm -hmm. back when in, uh, Missouri, sitting in front of that fireplace and the rocking chairs, and we didn't know what it was going to look like all them years ago. Uh, we've, we've done a, a really good job, I think of, of representing and, and having a good following and, but really it's all you folks that are out there listening to us. I mean, who the heck are we that we could sit here and share our opinions with you, but we appreciate every single listen. We appreciate every single comment, good or bad. And sometimes we get bad comments that you guys, yeah. you guys suck, or you missed a mark on that. And, and that's what this is all about. You get to have those opinions with us. And, you know, just because I share my opinion doesn't mean it's yours. And I respect yours, Kelly, and you respect mine. And we joke 
uh, about back and forth, but we also hear from listeners who don't agree with us that we respect their opinions about our, our topics and our opinions. Yep. Tre- tremendously blessed with the listenership we have. Uh, they they uh, support us and they keep us honest as well and make us reevaluate our, our position sometimes. That's always a good thing intellectually. Speaking about good things intellectual, um, let's go ahead and talk about this week's topic. And for a change, I'm going to let you set that topic up this week. Well, this is this is one you made me aware of, and I think it's time we we embraced and and affirmed and and uh, validated our old friend ketamine. The sedative's so good, the horses want it back. Um, there, you know, uh, ketamine has taken a bad rap and has, has started to be approached with some trepidation by some uh, uh, conservative medical directors or or, or uh, supervisors who who think we. Uh, we may be uh, going overboard with it, uh, and that's fueled by uh, some of the adverse events in Colorado and other places where cetamine was probably over was was uh, documented to be overdosed to a large degree and uh, administered inappropriately when it wasn't necessary. Um, but the fact remains that ketamine is is still an excellent tool in our toolbox, both for uh, analgesia and for sedation. And uh, you sent me a thing from CNN Health. It said ketamine infusions improve symptoms of depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation. And this is something I was aware of. Uh, I hadn't really read the literature on it. But actually, Chris, some of our listeners who suffer from PTSD and and severe depression, one of them uh, from a uh, traumatic brain injury uh, suffered on the job as an EMT, uh, has has. Uh, sustained some wonderful results with her depression and uh, and uh, suicidal ideation from ketamine therapy. Um, and uh, the CNN article uh, goes on to detail how these these people who uh, who got uh, intravenous ketamine at uh, at uh, different ketamine infusion clinics had significant improvement in their uh, depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation. And uh, they publish a study in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry uh, that kind of starts to add to that body of research. It shows that ketamine's promise in treating these conditions. Uh, who'd thunk it, man? Re- remember back in the day when the real hardcore addicts uh, were, were dosing horse tranquilizers and we were making fun of them and thinking they were, and now we're giving the horse tranquilizers and, and the horses want it back. Yeah, I think that's really funny. And I laughed the first time you said it. I don't know that it holds the same weight. It's, it's just like it keeps getting funnier every time I say it. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, but one of the things that I was thinking about, you know, not just with Kenneman, and when we start to talk about it from the standpoint of sedation, when we start to talk about it for depression, but in the same vein, after I sent you that article that was written, I was reading a, a article about ecstasy. Yeah, I was going to mention that as well. And and when we think about that drug, I mean, basically it's been around since the 1912s, and it was really kind of developed as a parent compound to help synthesize medications to control bleeding. Um, And and, But one of the things that happened as it started to materialize in the 70s and the 80s, it had undergone more formal clinical trials, and then they started to give it, use it for humans in... uh, 
use it for people that were having psychiatric challenges. Mm -hmm. And then eventually it started to move more into the people with terminal illness and it allowed them to deal a little bit more with their mortality and kind of ask the questions of, you know, what was going to happen and how was I going to deal with these? And I guess the reason that we bring this up today, you know, is, is there are a lot of uh, medications that we use out there that are used really for other different things. And, you know, you mentioned it. I was so excited when we finally had the opportunity to say ketamine was going to be in our, in our toolbox. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I knew that the power of, of what it was having read the research, you know, about 10 or 12 years ago and uh, you know, bringing it into EMS, I was really excited. Then of course uh, we had some challenges with it. And now, you know, it's kind of gotten the bum rap that we can't use it in sedation, but we've got to be able to figure out a way to use the medications that are around and really kind of knock some of the stigma off yeah. that comes with these medications. And, um, you know, I don't know what the answer is, but I just found the article interesting that people are, you know, we think about depression, we think about anxiety. And if there's a medication, and as you mentioned, the, someone that you know is using it, um, mm -hmm. if there's an opportunity that we can kind of look at some of these things to help the people who are, who are killing themselves because of depression and PTSD, mm -hmm. I mean, why not? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I find it interesting that, you know, despite the current backlash over, over ketamine and the pushback over, over using ketamine. And I think in, in the cases, you know what they say, uh, uh, bad cases, uh, hard cases make for bad law. Uh, and and some of the restrictions on ketamine use uh, coming out of those incidences of misuse um, really uh, restrict our, our ability to give it more than they should. Uh, it's been my experience in the years that we've carried ketamine that the only bad experience I've had are the adverse effects uh, on a patient that I've uh, observed or when I underdosed it. Uh, I was giving a conservative dose of ketamine uh, and uh, to a patient in, in really severe pain from renal calculi, uh, or come to think of it, actually, it might have been pancreatitis, but he was in severe pain, and we'd given him about all the fentanyl he could get. Uh, and in fact, I was out of fentanyl and uh, gave him a, a small dose of, of ketamine, and it just put him in a horrific K-hole, and uh, he, he was hallucinating my partner as the Grim Reaper, which I told him afterwards, you know, you're not far off the mark, but... <laughs> But he thought my partner was the Grim Reaper and 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 made him super anxious, which looking back on it now, I should have given a, a bigger dose and I would have gotten better dissociation with it. But we still use it as a uh, as an adjunct uh, or as our primary treatment for uh, uh, our primary method for uh, chemical restraint uh, in patients with uh, excited delirium, severe combativeness and stuff. And it's, it's tailor-made for that. It works well for that. And I think with appropriate monitoring, uh, which we do as a matter of course with any kind of sedative, CO2 monitoring, pulse oximetry, cardiac monitoring, and vital signs every three to five minutes, right. I, I think it's, it's still a rather safe drug to give. Um, I, I remember not long ago, uh, I had a patient with a uh, closed femur fracture that uh, I uh, sedated with uh, or I gave him a, a big whopping dose of fentanyl and a uh, five milligram dose of Versed to, to kind of snow him before we pulled him out of the truck. His request was, hey, man, whatever you do, just knock me out before you take me out of this truck. And I said, asking you shall receive. <laughs> so I gave him the stuff. And, and on QI, uh, the only um, <clears throat> the only uh, 
feedback I got was, why didn't you give him ketamine? And I said, well, uh, frankly, um, I was still thinking of our old protocols before we moved ketamine up the, uh, the formulary list uh, uh, ahead of Versed, uh, but I had it in my mind that I wanted to give something that also acted as a skeletal muscle relaxant because the guy had the femur fracture. Uh, mm-hmm. I said, uh, come to think of it, yeah, I think I, I, think I could have used ketamine in, uh, in the same situation. But it has been an effective drug every time I have used it, with the exception of the one time when I probably didn't give a, a sufficient dose of it. And um, I think that uh, we um, we could, uh, you know, the poor drug's taking a bad rap, uh, and, and it's not necessarily the fault of the medication. Uh, uh, many of the, the adverse effects are, are the fault of the user. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we, we think about these drugs, they've been around forever. I mean, you yeah. we joked about it. What was the, what was the horse joke again? I'll let you say it again. <laughs> Ketamine, a sedative so good. The horses want it back. Okay. So that, you know, that it was actually developed. Thank you for a, that, man. A yeah, great yeah. I just figured I'd give you another go at it. You know, it was developed as an anesthesia for horses or animals really in the 1960s in Belgium. So yeah. it's been around forever. And here's a nice little tidbit that you probably didn't know as we were preparing for the show. Um, it was approved for use in the 1970s on humans, and they actually started to use it uh, to treat injured soldiers in Vietnam. Really? Yeah. And it's really? one of the things that um, as they people started to use it, and then they started to use it in more of emergency responses, you know, there's a, there's a story that I tried to reference that I couldn't find the reference to it. You know, someone tried to jump off a bridge, and they kind of talked them down, and they put them in the ambulance, and they gave them ketamine. Nine months later, he had no suicidal thoughts. So this is really now where this started to develop to say, is there any type of uh, benefit? And, uh, you know, the doctors will say that ketamine will cause a disassociative experience, um, you know, to what's going on. And it kind of really kind of puts them in a different place. It produces, Mm -hmm. you know, feelings of unreality, visual and sensory distortions. That's what I get with you when I look at your picture all the time. A distorted feeling of one's body. Uh, and of course, there's things you got to worry about uh, when you talk about ketamine and different uses. But, you know, when we think about where it's come from and we think about where it is, again, are we really utilizing these drugs to the best of their ability to treat the patients who really need some help? And when we think about the, the patients that we see that have severe mental illness or having behavioral challenges and you know, you talk about excited delirium. Um, I think that there needs to be more research from an EMS side to really try to figure out where ketamine can be and where the sweet spot is for different drugs. Remember when we used to use dopamine, we used to be able to, I guess we still use dopamine, but different doses gave different responses for what we wanted to treat. Yeah, well, we, we thought, but there were really only two dosage ranges rather than the three. Okay, but yeah. you know, don't ru- yeah, ruin, ruin, ruin my story I, for. I'm picking up what you're putting down, brother. But it's the same thing with any other yeah. drug. So why can't we use it as a sedative? Mm-hmm. Why can't we use it to help people that are having mental health challenges? Why can't we use it for people that need pain relief? Mm-hmm. And I think that we just have to be able now to start to look at this from the standpoint of where it, co- you know, what it does, uh, at what dose, and what we could use it for in our uh, in our formulary. Yeah, you know, the, this stories like this and, and stories uh, uh, like the, the ones about uh, MDMA and ecstasy for PTSD and everything have, have really started to shift my uh, 
or, or spur and even accelerate my, my lean toward libertarianism in, in the matter of, of drug policy. Uh, you've heard me say on the show before that we've lost the war on drugs and we might as well just cut our losses and, and uh, um, start focusing more on, on research and therapy and rehab rather than interdiction. Um, but it doesn't escape my notice that, you know, in our field, we see that, that mental illness and drug abuse go hand in hand also often. And, and the, the, the superficial view of that is, is that drug use makes you crazy. Uh, but it doesn't really, not necessarily. Um, so many of our patients with mental illness are self-medicating with what we consider drugs of abuse because they've been they they've fallen through the cracks in the system and they can't get medical care for their mental illness. So they they resort to drugs, often illicitly purchased drugs, to to even their moods and to. And it seems to me that you know if if drugs that supposedly prior to this had no established clinical benefit and the FDA is now saying, yes, they do drugs like ketamine, uh, or drugs like MDMA, uh, Molly ecstasy, that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> and now they're saying this could be breakthrough therapy for PTSD that maybe it's a better approach that we, instead of taking a regulatory and, and, and punitive approach to use of these drugs that we start focusing more money on, as you said, research so that the the benefits of these drugs including marijuana can be studied and and medically supervised and, and get patients who who really need it and benefit from it the care that they need uh i think that uh we've got a an area of uh psychopharmacy that we have not mined sufficiently uh and some of these drugs that were previously considered drugs of abuse are uh are some pretty ripe ore to be mined if we devote energy to it and I think that one of the things that's really interesting too, when, when you think about the other uh, drugs that are used for depression and anxiety, a lot of mm -hmm. times these drugs take a loading a loading time, right? Yes, they usually talk about three, four weeks before they start to feel any relief of symptoms. But when you yeah. talk about something like the use of of ketamine, it really is now uh, happening a little bit shorter. It's it's probably about a two week time frame. You know, in the National Library of Medicine, there's a study that uh, was conducted with 25 men who uh, they had severe depression. They had no previous history of psychotic disorder, head injury or anything as such. Uh, when they were in the study, they were actually given 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of IV dose. And uh, they were given it for um, six doses given over two weeks. And after the first week, people were starting to say that they felt better. And then after the last dose was given, after a month, it was still seen that these people that were having depression were a little bit more happier and, and they were doing better in their lives, right? And so mm -hmm. the on, you know, getting it on board was a lot quicker for them to start feeling some major for relief. So there's been a lot of people who were studying uh, the use of this drug in depression. And I think EMS has to start taking a look at it. Of course, one of the challenges that we have is we're not treating people for depression. We're no. usually treating them when they get into crisis. Mm -hmm. And uh, now from a community paramedicine standpoint, where we start to see people before they go into crisis, is this something that we can do as an IV therapy one time a week inside somebody's home to help them to handle the, uh, you know, yeah. the symptoms of depression? Well, the answer may, it may the answer may be maybe and yeah. um but these are things that we need to look at now because we start to think about what we do from an emergency response 
situation. But how about if we're going to be doing, you know, two visits for 10 weeks? What can yeah. we do for people? Yeah. You know, uh, we, you said it yourself. We, we see people at the peak of mental illness, uh, yet we ignore maintenance of mental wellness. And that's what, that's what uh, community paramedicine in that regard may, may be uh, instrumental uh, and, and uh, regular psychotherapy uh, combined with uh, adjunctive use of these medications may be potentially beneficial. You know, we've always thought that therapy, you know, psychotherapy, talking about your problems, um, opening up uh, and, and getting in touch with and reprocessing those, those negative thoughts and emotions and those fears is instrumental uh, to, to dealing with that past trauma. But when someone uh, can't open up and, and can't uh, trust themselves to access those memories that, that hold so much fear and horror for them, um, uh, the therapy is limited. So when you, uh, and that's one of the things about ketamine and depression, uh, it, it allows that, that little bit of dissociation allows them to objectively uh, view those, those uh, negative thoughts and, and the things that depress them and their triggers and PTSD and so on and so forth. Um, and, and they can help reprocess and reframe those thoughts. Something like, like ketamine or MDMA uh, for your PTSD victims, uh, coupled with things like uh eye movement, desensitization, and processing the EMDR therapy and, and how to reframe those motion, uh, those, those memories and, and associate them with, uh, with more positive thoughts holds a lot of promise. Uh, and I think that, um, uh, I would hope that, that, um, physician or that uh, insurance reimbursement would start to reflect that fact uh, and that people wouldn't have to uh, pay for this out of pocket uh, as an off-label use. It strikes me that, that uh, the long-term cost of managing someone with severe mental illness would be a heck of a lot higher uh, <laughs> uh, doing it our current way rather than, than uh, um, opening up some, some reimbursement for adjunctive therapy to help them, get, uh, help them never get to that point, which thing. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And I think that it's the stigma, right? But you bring yeah. up a good point too. Who's paying for it, right? So where, where, where is this coming from and who's going to pick up the tab for it when we think about this from the uh, pharmaceutical standpoint? And, you know, one of the things when we start to think a bit about these drugs, you know, we talked about uh, ecstasy. Uh, we talked about the use of it in terminal patients that allow them to start to have a little bit more understanding about what they're going through. And there's been studies going back to the early two thousands on this, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking 2022 now. What, what's, yeah. what's come of this? And, and marijuana the, longer than that. It, you know, it's these psychedelic drugs now that give people the opportunity to kind of face their fear and really kind of question what's going to happen to me when I die, what's going to happen to me during this illness, you know, but you also brought up, uh, medical marijuana in in the use of uh you know treating depression and PTSD and I don't know that I'm as hung up on this as I used to be you know as a as a as a paramedic I was very very against the use of any type of drugs and you know as an EMS chief I had you know I had policies in place that if you blah 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 and you were positive and you know and now when we start to think about all these studies that are coming out for people that are using CBD oil or using CBD, um, you know, to, uh, uh, you know, or smoking CBD or, or THC even, and they're mm -hmm. finding relief to where they're not, you know, uh, hanging themselves in their closets or putting a pistol in their mouth. And because now they're able to cope a little bit better, 
you know, we, we, me, we have to be able now as, as an old guard, I have to be able to say, you know, maybe my old ways of thinking are, are, are gone and I've got to be the ones to start to think about the change, but I don't know as I'm, I'm as hung up on it as I uh, was in the past, but that's why I sent you the article about ketamine. That's why, you know, I started to look at the, uh, you know, the ecstasy used to ease the fear of terminal illness. There's a lot of articles out there for my EMS peers. Go ahead and read them and check them out. Um, I know if I'm in that position where I have to question my own mortality because I have a terminal illness, I want to take everything I can to keep mm -hmm. myself on the right side of that path. Yeah. Am I going to be strong enough? You see some of these people, you know, there's, I'm watching this, you know, I'm a TikTok addict. I don't know. I'm mm -hmm. going to admit that to you, Kelly. And the first step in a 12 step program I've, is to I've admit you have a problem. Challenges, so yeah. They were entertaining. But there's a woman who is, uh, she has a terminal illness and she's now in hospice and she's taken us to the end of her life. And it is very, very uh, compelling. And you can't help but feel for this woman. And now she's at a stage where um, her body is starting to shut down and she's stopped. Uh, she can't use her legs anymore. And, and people are now having to feed her. And, um, you know, but when you feel this, because you don't just hear it, any bit of compassion, you feel her, you know, you feel her angst, you feel her anxiety, you feel what she's going through. I got to tell you, man, if that's me, uh, give me all the drugs I can that I don't have to go through that and feel that these people are, these people are heroes in my book. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's incredibly brave that she's documenting that process. And, and, you know, we see so many family members that don't understand hospice care, DNRs and that sort of thing. And they have a, a, a skewed um, perception of it. And, and we know that as humans, we fear what we don't know, what we don't understand. And uh, to chronicle her her uh, hospice journey uh, all the way to death is uh, is something that is uh, incredibly brave and something that could could um, act, you know, provide a lot of uh, um, education and insight and empathy into what these people go through and maybe shift their thinking on a little bit. I know for myself, dude, if I could find some medication to help manage my depression that makes me sweat uh, less than the current SSRIs I'm on, I will take that sucker. If it's legal and I don't have to sweat like a fountain every time I take a pill, uh, sign me up. But hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. Um, do you know anybody that's taking off-label ketamine or ecstasy for their mental illness? Uh, how's it working for them? We'd like to hear your thoughts at the show at EMS1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Ceballero, who's not nearly as depressing to talk to as people think, this is Kelly Grayson, and thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you next week.